The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. This podcast is as close to hell as you'll ever want to get. If you can't <laughs> recognize that particular line, because it is a little bit of a deep cut. It is. Uh, we are continuing our very exciting uh, journey back into the Conjuring verse with The Conjuring 2. This is my home. Get out now. No, this is not your house. Now, what's your name? My name is Bill Wilkins, and I'm 72 years old. What do you make of that voice? Sounds confused. Is he see now? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. We could have probably made that a little bit more scary with the Crooked Man little jingle that they do. Eh. I'm committed already. I mean, so am I, but I'm just saying it's not as scary as compared to that jingle. That was the scariest part about the Crooked Man. There was a Crooked Man, and he walked a Crooked Mile. Anyway. And that is also terrifying. Thank you for that, Nathaniel. (laughs) I do what I can. (laughs) Um, This movie, I think when we talked about The Conjuring, I thought the second one was actually better than the first one. Do you recall that? Yes, yes, you you made a, a hard statement to that effect. Um, I think I'm changing my mind after watching The Conjuring Two with a critic's eye. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's lost a lot of its luster for me. That, or I'm just becoming a debased human being, and <laughs> nothing scares me anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> I I think. I think The Conjuring 2 is a great movie, but when you watch it kind of back-to-back with the original Conjuring, the original Conjuring is just a little bit stronger. I don't know. And I also think if you've kind of gone to darker demon movies, um, it it felt very Hollywood horror. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, like... Not really edgy compared to other stuff. And I'm probably going to say Hereditary nine times in this episode because that's a fantastic demonic movie. And it's hard not to compare that like awesome horror film to others nowadays. It's true. But I mean, that said, as far as like widespread, everyone has watched it horror, I would say both of the Conjuring movies are still really strong entries into the genre. I would agree. I think it's... Um, kind of that next step, you know, they're both rated R, and so the scares can be a little bit more intense. And it's a good horror movie that a lot of people like, a lot of people enjoyed, and so it helps kind of build that rapport with people. And I don't know, overall, I think they're fairly solid. One and two. Yeah. Yeah, and I I, I like that they're both rated R strictly for being scary. Like, If you looked at the breakdown, it's not like... Um, intense scariness and 
boobs. Or <laughs> we both said boobs at the same time. Jinx. <laughs> Friendship power. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it just shows how pervasive boobs are in uh, R-rated <laughs> I, horror. But I, but I get what you're saying, though. Like when a horror movie is R because of you know frightening scenes or horror thematic elements, whatever the phraseology there is. I, I really like that, and it's really cool that that level of horror can make a movie PG-13 to R. I don't know. I, I think it's cool. It's not even that, that these movies are gory or anything like that. It's just straight-up scary. So I guess, you know, no matter anything less positive that we end up saying about this movie, still have to consider, like, it's scary enough to, to earn that R rating regardless of any other content so all bad aside it does a good job at what it was trying to do Mm -hmm. it's just not perfect my biggest gripe mostly has to do with the plot not really the horror yeah i agree so i guess should we dig into the things we liked about it before we kind of dig into the things that we liked a little bit less about this movie yeah i think that's a great starting point so i guess for me i I, I will say that there are a lot of very effective scares in this movie. Agreed. I, I had a really hard time trying to pick one. I think the, the, the biggest impact is when we kind of first meet the, the nun or the demon, Valak, for the first time. We see this creepy painting at the beginning of the movie, but there's no real connection. And then all of a sudden, it pops out of nowhere, and it's really intriguing how they did this. Well, I mean, technically you first see her in Lorraine's vision, and then you see her in That's this true. scene. That's true. I forgot about that opening. But it's still a really strong scene, yeah. So, th- so, so the scene that we're specifically talking about is when Lorraine is, you know, sitting at the kitchen table, looking at her Bible, and then suddenly her her daughter says, like, who, like Mom, who, who's that? And so she goes and looks, there's the nun... And so she follows her into this, you know, study room or whatever it is. And, yep, there's the painting of of the nun that Ed uh, painted earlier. And I think the best part of the scene is when the lights flicker on and off. And you're, you're looking right at the painting. And when the lights flicker, it almost... And I don't know if this was special effects or honestly just how the painting was made. It's light. Eyes start to kind of light up and there seems to be a lot more... I don't know, terrifying aspects of this painting. It's really creepy. You almost can't tell if it is the nun or if it's still the painting. Yeah, that's a really effective visual scare. And then I love that that there's also, you know, kind of things that feed into the mythology that they've built around Valak, where it's, it's, you know, specifically trying to be a perversion of faith. So, you know, obviously there's the nun aspect of, of Valak, but then there's also the children's christian choir singing and you know that keeps coming on and off and it's just all of it really results in a very strong very creepy scene especially like yeah when the hands come around the sides of the painting and suddenly it runs at her and you know Mm -hmm. the the painting starts roaring at her and oh it's a good scene when you said that the um, Valak kind of represents the perversion of faith is that something they describe in the movie is it just kind of the idea of demons no so when lorraine is uh at the end of the movie (gasps) that's right saying the name of valak and when she has her epiphany as to what what its name is she she calls valak i think the defiler and the perverse of snakes 
Yeah, and 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 she also specifically references that the demon is there to try to uh, get her to question her faith. So it, it seems like that's specifically a theme as to why it's a nun and you know why there's all this like religious imagery around this specific demon. Got you. That's interesting, and as we'll learn a little bit later on, he's nothing like that. <laughs> Which is a part of my issues with it. Anyway, let's not get there, because I have a lot to say later. Um, Another awesome, horrifying, and really just really cool cinematography scene is when Ed is talking to Bill kind of for the first time through the conduit, the little girl, and her name is slipping my... Janet. It's Janet. Um, The way they filmed this, where you see her kind of in the background, she's taken a fairly large gulp of water and holding it in her mouth so the video recorders can kind of prove that she's not making this voice her voice slowly methodically starts to change into bill's voice and the camera angle is very fuzzy and she starts to kind of twist and morph into bill and i i don't know this was probably my favorite scene of the entire movie yeah it's just a really good scene in terms of how it's shot like, I love that, yeah, it's it's all out of focus in the background, so you're kind of processing it at, uh, in the same way that the characters are who are looking away from her. It really drew me into the scene, and it was very, like, the, the transition in and out of it being Bill in the background sitting as opposed to Janet was just so well done and so, like, seamless. Uh, I really like that scene. And then to follow it up is the scene where the crucifix is on the wall. This poor mother has this demon possession going on in her house and the community it was fairly well broadcasted and we'll get into that when we talk about the haunting that this movie was based on a lot of her neighbors had donated these crucifixes and they were hung up in this room all over the walls and that for me a little was unnerving to see all these crosses and then some of the demon hauntings start to begin and the crosses slowly turn upside down, which again goes into the motif that they were trying to do for Valak as a defiler of faith. Yeah, I really like that scene. Also, just because it's it's really creepy, you know, to have her tied to her bed and then she falls asleep and wakes up, you know, on the ceiling of the downstairs and then teleports again to that room, which was chained shut, and then for that to happen. So she's trapped in there as all of those are turning, and uh, it it was a really fun scene. Um, So those were some of the more effective scares. Overall, I think the action is pretty intense. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't slow-paced at all, really. The, The hauntings and the possessions started going off quite early. Um, I I love the scene at the beginning where Janet and her friend have created their own little Ouija board. I thought that was awesome. Um, But overall, the acting is very, very solid. A lot of the scenes are well-paced. Like, it's a good movie. Yeah, the cinematography is still very solid. Like, it it definitely still, you know, is, is very much James Wan showing off how polished he has become as a director. Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, a lot of the scenes are very very well put together and i really appreciated the scene at the end where lorraine is finally kind of revealing valak's name and casting him out the special effects here as the nun costume was slowly eroding away and you got to see valak's true form and it was very demonic but also very creative at the same time 
Um, I loved it. I, I, I wanted more of that. And it was a big issue I had with like Annabelle creation. One Valak doesn't really make sense there. But you saw a little bit more of what he really looked like. And I, ugh, I wanted it. I wanted more. Yeah. And I love that, you know, just just the visual of, yeah, one, the, the habit getting torn away and you seeing a more monstrous form. And then seeing that, like, fighting as it's getting, like, sucked back into hell. It was such yeah. a cool visual. I love that. Dreams and goals right there. Yes. I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not get sucked down to hell, but cast out demons. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what were a few of your other favorite scenes? Um... I don't know. Like, those are really the high points. The rest of the movie is is fine to me, but there nothing's really standing out in my mind right now. Um, I kind of think that shows a little bit of the movie's integrity. Like, there are these few good scenes, there are these few good horror movies, but on a general, like, they're just—it's fun. But I agree with you. There, nothing. It's, it's kind of forgettable in some ways, I'm realizing, which is a little sad. Well, I think what happens, honestly, with the movie is that you kind of forget that the other scenes are just okay. It, it's it's never, I think, at any point a bad movie. It's just typical haunting stuff, and then it has some really strong moments. And those strong moments really do elevate it over a lot of other haunting movies, but the rest of the movie isn't quite at that same point. The pieces that make it strong are, are, yeah, like we said, basically the the talk with Bill, the crosses turning scene, and and like the painting scene, and that that the end action is really good. But the rest of the movie just doesn't have quite as much to it as The Conjuring did. Totally. So should we move into maybe some of the not so great parts? Um, well, I, there was one other thing I, I did want to talk about that I liked about the story uh, in terms of just story beats. I really liked that there was the point in the in the film in which the Warrens leave because they feel like it's been debunked. I liked that uh, in terms of, of story because it did a lot in terms of being effective for the audience. For the audience to go, hey, like, no, this stuff is really going on. We've been seeing these haunting things. And yes, like, there's this video of her trashing the uh, kitchen and pretending like you know, something horrible is going on when, you know, that's obviously faked. And so I thought that was a, a fun moment because you're like, oh no, like they're leaving. Like, what will this family do? It gets you really uh, drawn into that final action and, and really heightens the emotional stakes there. So I really liked that about it. I don't know. Last time I watched this, the scene seemed a little, I don't know, random, but I agree with you. And I didn't think about, you know, it kind of makes us more invested in or emotionally invested in the family if the Warrens are leaving and there's some panic. I, I haven't thought of it like that, and I think that's a great point of view. Yeah, because I, I just feel like it, it basically just leaves this family with no hope left, and then they get pulled back in. And, and admittedly, I would say the reason that they get pulled back with the tapes crossing each other and stuff was kind of cheesy, but... Regardless, just the idea of them leaving and then kind of coming back as things have just gone totally off the rails made for a fun transition into the final action and really did heighten the stakes. Now are you ready to talk about some bad stuff? Yes. Okay. Can we talk about the plot? This poor yes. plot. This poor plot. Oh. 
Um, it was all over the place. I thought they were... It felt like Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire when there's like nine different villains. That's Ugh. fair. And the whole Valak thing, I, I want more of the story. Yes, Valak appeared to Lorraine in, I guess, the Amityville Horror. Now he's possessing this little girl to get back at you for some reason. And valak's tied to the annabelle doll and valak was a nun like oh, i don't get it well at this point valak isn't tied to annabelle that was something they kind of added later thankfully this isn't this isn't something that we have to consider in the plot I know. that's a retcon i know I and just, a stupid retcon i just I don't know. Conjuring 2, Valak is a very scary demon, I think. Mm -hmm. They've created a very scary demon, but they're trying to do too much with him. Yeah, well, it it's that you don't really understand what the what the deal is with Valak. Valak is obviously at Amityville and then goes to Enfield to mess with the Warrens. Why like why is it targeting the Warrens? What what's the deal there? Why is it targeting this little girl? Did she she just uses a Ouija board and this demon who has a chip on his shoulder. I, I don't know. I don't well, know. It, like, I, I, I got the vibe that it was specifically like, hey, I'm going to mess with this little girl so the Warrens come and then I can mess them up. Yeah, it turned the movie into like a revenge movie. But the thing is, it wasn't even necessarily revenge for anything specific. I mean, right, right. they didn't even really do anything at Amityville. And we, we don't know the whole story at Amityville. I mean, we know the real story, but it, it, this movie made it out almost like it was teasing a prequel. Like Conjuring 1.5. I don't know, because Conjuring 1 was all about Bathsheba. It had nothing to do with Valak. Yeah, and so it just feels like there is this motivation for this villain that we're supposed to just kind of ignore isn't there. Which is frustrating. And then there's Bill and the Crooked Man. And I, I want to say that I really think the idea of a demon controlling a ghost, quote-unquote, a lesser spirit to do its will is a f awesome idea. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I wanted them to kind of go more into that, that Bill is a puppet for Valak. Like, this demonic control, a demon using a ghost to get to a human, that's cool. But... Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think that breaks down a little bit in this particular story in that it's it's not until, you know, the very end of the movie that we're suddenly like, oh, Bill is being controlled. When, like, obviously earlier on, in, like, when he's doing horrible things to this family, like, you get a strong impression that, like, he's enjoying it. He's, like, a very messed up, sinister dude. And then suddenly he's, he's no, I, I just want to be free. She's making me do it. Really? Like, I don't know. It just, it didn't fit his motivations as a very malicious spirit. I don't know. It just, it didn't feel like it connected. Like, I, I feel like it was one of those things where they had this Enfield haunting, but then they wanted to have the Valak in the early scenes. And then they're like, hey, let's tie it together as a twist at the end and even though those pieces don't quite tie together right, they went with it. Well, and I agree with you that this ghost was, you know, scary and mad and, and almost sadistic in a way, I guess. Yeah. And when you look at the on-field haunting for the first time, like for me, I thought it was very terrifying until I did the research. Like 
they have video recordings of these girls slipping in and out of these creepy, gross voices, and we didn't need a demon for it to be scary. It worked as a ghost story, and and I think the Conjuring universe would benefit from not just being a demon series. Like, I like the idea that, that there are malicious ghosts, and there's also the inhuman spirits, the demons, and, you know, there there could be more than one thing that's causing problems. And in this case, yeah, it was it was both things, but ultimately it's, you know, the the demonic is pulling the strings every time. Again, like, that's a cool twist. Give us more of that, or give us a whole demon movie, or give us a whole ghost, like, pick one lane. Yeah, well, or if you're going to combine them, do it in a way that makes more sense. And the random, the randomosity, I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> the chaos of it all really weakened a lot of the scares. You're really invested in Bill and you're trying to figure out when Bill's going to scare you next. Mm-hmm. And then he turns into the crooked man who walked a crooked mile, who has a crooked smile. The which... thing is, like, he didn't really turn into the crooked man. It was um, Janet who turned into the crooked man, kind of. I don't know. It, the crooked man <laughs> really didn't fit in either. It was... It was unclear as to what the Crooked Man was exactly. Was it Valak? Was it Bill? Was it something else? Because it would come up kind of randomly. It was a cool idea for a villain, but it didn't always look very good. To me, it kind of felt like they were trying to force a new Annabelle. Like, yes. In Conjuring 1, they had this really creepy doll that when the movie came out, people were almost as more afraid of the doll than they were the the Bathsheba possession, you know? And so it, it kind of felt like the side character that they were like, oh, this can be scary too. We can mark it off of this. And it, I don't know. It felt cheap. And 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 when The Conjuring 2 came out, I heard rumors that they were going to make a Crooked Man movie. Yeah, uh, there, is, there is a Crooked Man movie. I checked today. It's coming. Next year, people. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's just kind of too much. I, I would say it, it's frustrating because... I feel like there's the best thing for the story, and I felt like with The Conjuring 1, they made a, a strong movie, and then the marketing department's like, hey, so that Annabelle got a big reaction, let's make a movie out of that, and then let's make a sequel. Oh, but with the sequel, you have to give us at least two more Annabelles, you gotta have the nun, and you gotta have the crooked man. Yeah, Let's talk maybe some more other parts of the movies that we didn't quite love we already kind of mentioned it i don't think bill was super terrifying again yeah like like there were some scenes where he really worked but his motivations are just being like a a man who's just sadistic because he and and he's just mad that that his family isn't there just didn't quite work it was half-baked there is these weird like feel-good moments in the movie too which i'm all for a good feel-good movie or feel good moment but i don't know i don't know it made us kind of want to feel some sympathy that the dad left the family and i don't know it verged on sentimentality was the problem yeah yeah that was definitely a problem i had with the movie because you already like these characters you're already invested in these characters both lorraine and ed warren and also uh with this family it felt forced like they were choking it down yeah, I, like well, I felt like they they kept including moments that were very sentimental and sweet, 
to try to sell us on these characters, but we're already sold. And so at that point, you're just like... So to me, a a perfect example of this is that when the Warrens come, they're trying to help with the kids, and Ed is trying to fix stuff around their house. And that, you know, and Deer's... Like, like, it shows that they're trying to help them beyond just dealing with this haunting. They're trying to also just, like, connect with them as people and help them out. So that's great. But then, you know, we also have the scene where uh, they buy them a bunch of records, but it doesn't work. So he plays them the guitar. And, like, that can be a sweet moment, but I don't need that and him fixing stuff. And, a, you know, a dozen other things that, that show how great the, the Warrens are. At helping this family. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, those parts felt inconsistent. A lot of the hauntings felt inconsistent. Sometimes the the audio tracks felt inconsistent. <laughs> yeah. I, I really liked the music that played when Valak first appeared. It was kind of this dark, guttural, Gregorian chant twisted on its head, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times, I don't know, you mentioned you felt like things happened in a sound vacuum. Yeah, well, well. so the sound vacuum thing, what I was specifically referring to is that sometimes with the haunting, what would happen is that, you know, Bill would be doing something horrible to Janet, but, like, no one else, even her sister who's sleeping right next to her, can hear yeah. it. Yeah. And that was really inconsistent because most of the time when Bill was doing stuff, he was doing stuff that was big and loud and flashy, and he didn't care who saw it or heard it. Um, in fact, the more people who saw it, the more people are scared, so the better. So it just didn't make sense that like stuff would happen so isolatedly. Because it's not like he couldn't take on you know more than one person at a time. Like, I would get it if, if he was that limited, but he wasn't, you know. But, yeah, so it kept being, like, all the sound would be sucked out of the room, and then suddenly he he would do stuff in this, like, pocket of the room where no one else could hear anything, you know, if you're five feet away. And then later on in the movie, suddenly it's bang, 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 everything, everyone can hear everything, everyone's running to, to see what's going on. And it just, it didn't make sense why there would be that disconnect there. And, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, that's kind of the biggest issue with the movies it's inconsistent it has some really great scares some really great horrible scenes and then it just falls completely fat the other times and it feels random yeah inconsistent i think is probably my favorite word right now to describe the movie why didn't these other scenes kind of take what's working in these you know really iconic scenes and do it at a smaller scale instead they just kind of decided to play with the formula over and over again in weird ways and it just didn't quite do it for me also there was a lot more jump scares in this one which kind of bugged me yeah it's true a majority of the scares were jump scares it got super annoying do you know what also annoyed the heck out of me what how Valak's name was everywhere yeah yeah no the first time i watched it in theaters i like i saw Valak just like behind them lorraine is doing crafts with her daughter or something like they're like making beaded necklaces or something like that i can't remember exactly we're just like eating breakfast it's like behind them like on both windows and at first i saw the name and i was like alec like i didn't see because it was like a weird v um, and so at first I was like, is that what their daughter's name was? I don't remember it being her, her name being Alec. And then suddenly I see it like another dozen times around this room and she's making a beaded necklace that says Valak. And I'm like, <laughs> really? I'm I was su- like, okay, well, this is going to be important. I-, I was surprised that the Cheerios in the milk didn't start to spell Valak after a little bit. Yeah, oh. it just, so like once 
it, the the name of the demon suddenly was important, I was like, oh, I wonder what it is. Ugh. It was so bad. And especially if you know demons, and you see Valak, and you're like, oh, who's Valak? Oh, it's a cherub riding a snake. <sighs> hmm. That could have been done much better. I, I like small Easter eggs, you know. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I don't mind clues and, and foreshadowing. That's great. But it was and it just, it hit me over the head with it with a sledgehammer. So maybe we should kind of go in and give our crowns and screams, wrap this up, because we have some other fun stuff we want to talk about. Yes. So as far as screams go, I'm still going to give it a seven, mostly on the laurels of just how good the, the scares are in those scenes that we mentioned. I would agree. I gave it a 7 as well. Again, it's like one step above a PG-13 horror movie, and it does a really good job. A lot of people love the show. And, like, I get why people really love this movie. It is it is a very solid movie. And so, yeah, with Crowns, I'm also going to give it a 7. It's the the acting and the effects and the cinematography and, and those scares really did do it for me in spite of all of the flaws. Um, and then as far as Crowns, again, a 7. It's yeah. a great movie. Um, it's very well produced, like we kind of talked about. Juan really polishes this movie up. Yeah, so sevens across the board. Sound like you're on RuPaul Drag Race when you say that. I, I'll have to take your word for that. <laughs> mm, it's it's fantastic. <laughs> Let's dive right on in. Let's talk about one of the, I guess, the two most haunted stories that America and England have. Yeah, but I guess before that, should we uh, acknowledge the the news story that you brought to my attention? We should. Um, we started recording a few minutes ago, and right before we did, I got a little blurb on my phone. Lorraine Warren has passed away today, the 19th of April. In spite of some uh, questioning we're going to do uh, of of her and her husband, we do want to pay our respects and say, you know, we, we definitely appreciate that she's done a lot for the fields of, of paranormal research and has helped bring us some really fun horror movies. So, And their stories and kind of the education that they were able to create much more common in society will live forever. They're very scary and they make for great media, as we've seen. They, they did a really good job progressing our little terrifying community. Yeah, and, and it, at very least, it, it, it has provided some really interesting discussion points, and, and I don't know, it just makes the, the world a little bit more interesting, so R.I.P. R.I.P. All right, so should we let this rip? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad, that was no, dumb. No, no, you got to keep it. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Amityville. We didn't realize that it was diabolically infested, and on a scale of... What to 10? I would have to say that Amityville was a 10. I want to make it clear at the beginning of this program that Lorraine and I do not back up the movie or the book. Mm-hmm. It was much more horrific than either. The Amityville Haunting. If you are listening to our podcast and you don't know what the Amityville Horror is, you need to reevaluate your life. It is a famous, famous episode. Or not episode haunting what's going on with me today is there another demon did you have a stroke (laughs) i think i did 
Um, Please say right. she didn't die of a stroke. That'd be really tasteless oh, of me. Oh my gosh, you would have to edit that out. So, oh, oh, oh. All right, Amityville Horror. This is a very, very popular haunted house ghost murder kind of a story. 1974, Ronald DeFeo woke up and shot six members of his family. Um, this is the kind of real horror of this, is this man shot six people who were his family. That's wild. Um, he was convicted of second-degree murder. That happened, it looks like, in November 1975. In December, not just a month later, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved to this house. And after about a month of crazy hauntings, the Lutzes, or Lutzes, however you want to pronounce them, left the house claiming to have been terrorized by the supernatural. And a lot of the supernatural events that happened were very dramatized, very exaggerated, very physical. I don't know if you would agree, but a lot of their hauntings seem to be no, like, hallucinatory kind of stuff. Flies, the clock... I don't know. What do you think, Nathaniel? Um, well, I'd say, yeah, a lot of the stuff is, is very physical for reasons that I'm going to go into in a, yeah. in a minute. And so a few of the the more popular hauntings is George would wake up around 3.15 every morning, which is the time, supposedly, that DeFeo went around and shot everybody. They would have vivid nightmares about the murders, the DeFeo murders... There was a reporting of flies escaping the sink. Basically, all of your drain outlets in the house, these mass amount of flies were escaping. Spots would smell like... Um, mold. Mold, excrement, all sorts of ugly, gross smells. People would wake up with red welts on their chest. You know, very standard haunting things that are out there. And I think Amityville helped propagate those in some regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read cloven hoof prints attributed to an enormous pig. Like, all very sensational hauntings. The Warrens got involved with this case. They they arrived and they really perpetuated this haunting story that these things were actual events. There were re- something demonic was in the house. It wasn't, you know, a ghost or anything like that. Yeah, and they came in, like, after the family had already fled, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. There's a very, very popular picture out where they took of a hallway with this little boy who's kind of leaning over and has stark white eyes. And it was interesting that in The Conjuring 2, what we just talked about, one of the scenes kind of mirrors this image right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Lorraine is having her walkthrough of the Amityville house in her vision. So this this story got very, very popular. It's America's most haunted house. You've got this and you've got the Winchester house. Um, Which is not haunted. No, no. And honestly, and I'll let you just turn into it. Mention the book that was written. You're going to, oh man, you have feelings about this. Yes. Okay, so so how this really took off then was when a, an author, a journalist named Jay Anson got involved. Uh, so he wrote a book, you know, claiming to be based on the experiences of the Lutz family, and it was really bad. Um, so I tried to read it personally, 
and I found it's I found it rife with like spelling and grammatical errors and it was just poorly written. Like the stuff that it was describing was creepy admittedly, you know, with the flies and everything like that, but it just it was it was hard to read just because it was so poorly written and it you know insisted everything it was telling was absolutely true which has subsequently resulted in controversy and even several lawsuits over how truthful it claimed to be and i mean really what this boils down to is that the lutz family couldn't afford the house and they created this story in which they were being horribly haunted and, you know, left the house in the middle of the night, you know, as dramatically as they could, and then got as much media attention as they could to, you know, to this haunted house, and then, you know, sold media appearances and sold this book with Jay Anson and all of that stuff to try to make money. Um, and this was something that I, I, I don't believe George Letts ever uh, openly admitted, but his wife later... I don't know, it, it, it was much later they basically said, like, yes, this is... Bogus. Yeah, just just malarkey. <laughs> and so, so you know, they, they have admitted that, like, it is not true. Some interesting things have, have kind of come out from all of this. One thing that I watched was a documentary called My Amityville Horror, which is the um, son of Kathy Lutz and, and I guess, the stepson of George Lutz, who, you know, was there experiencing the the uh, alleged haunting. And in this uh, documentary, you know, he is coming forward and he's saying that uh, he, he does make the claim that, that some of the stuff, you know, the haunting stuff did actually happen, but that most of the stuff that happened was actually just that George Lutz was a horrible, horrible person who was very abusive and so, you know, if he were to, say, beat one of the children, then he would then say, oh, yeah, the it's the horrible ghosts in our house. That kind of stuff. So he was very abusive, and and so he seems to be the uh, the, the real monster that, that was in the house, not, not anything necessarily supernatural. So this is kind of strike one, I think, for the Warrens. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, hindsight's... 50-50 or 20-20 or whatever they say. 2020. Um, it's it's a vision thing. I know, but for some reason I always say 50-50. I do what I want. Okay. It really is unfortunate that it's been so debunked to the point where if you know anything about it, you you know to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, or an entire shaker of salt. <laughs> and then we get into the Enfield haunting, which was in London, and is kind of the Anglicanized version of the Amityville Horror. Very similar situations, I think. Why can't Janet sue you? I'm invisible. You're invisible? Why are you invisible? So much you hang out so the Enfield haunting is really interesting because there are definitely a lot more people who have uh, claimed to have seen things relative to the haunting. So it, it does hold a little bit more water than Amityville. 
So there are, I believe, approximately 30 people who have claimed to have seen some of the haunting events like furniture moving around, that kind of thing, which is at least hinted at in the movie, but not necessarily specifically shown. But it's also, and, and, and also like right from the very beginning, there were two people who were from a local uh, society for psychic research, Maurice Gross, who is shown in the movie, and also uh, a guy named Guy Lion Playfair, I might have butchered his middle name, but regardless, who came in and investigated it. And so Playfair later wrote a book about it called This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist. And he indicated that he, he ultimately does believe that it was genuinely haunted, but that the children did fake or exaggerate a number of the events. So that's kind of interesting that he... Even in his book saying, yes, it's real, he had to go, but they did fake stuff. And so some of the most, I'd say, definitive evidence to it being uh, all fabricated was actually something that that did come up in the movie, which I thought was kind of a, a fun little nod to, to the, the real story. And that being Janet in the kitchen. Right. Well, that as well, actually. Um, so Janet smashing the the plates in the kitchen, and and you know that being at least in the movie the reason that they left. Um, yeah. So she, so they did. You know, have have the kids. The kids would do that kind of thing sometimes, and then you know occasionally get caught. But also, it's it's earlier on. Uh, it's when the Warrens are meeting with Maurice, and he's showing them some photos of her getting like thrown up in the air. And Ed looks at it and he's like, her legs are bent in a way that it looks like she's just jumping. And uh, that's oh, the yeah. thing. I remember this. I've actually seen the sequence of photos because they, they took it in, in a sequence. And it's very clearly that she's just jumping off of her bed. <laughs> it's like ridiculously obvious. <laughs> and so, again, the Warrens get involved. Um, and again, it's demonic. Yeah, and, and though admittedly they did get involved to a much lesser degree than the movie indicates. Right. Very exaggerated from what the movie showed. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's all bunk. So strike two, Warrens. Strike two. We love you, but strike two. Yeah, and so one thing that I've actually been really wanting to check out uh, relative to the Enfield haunting uh, is a BBC series called the Enfield Haunting, it was just, I think, a three-episode miniseries. I think I've seen that in my Amazon or Hulu queue. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard that it's very good. Um, and I and I and my understanding of it is that it takes the approach of, of a very kind of skeptical thing. Like, it shows all the stuff, but then it also ultimately, I think, has the conclusion of it being false. But I've heard it's very, very good. So I've been wanting to check that out. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Valak? Yeah, a little bit or a lot of it? Um, how about a lot? Not a lot, but enough. Okay. Um, all right. So Valak has quite a few names. Um, Valak is a pretty common one that you see, but it's actually spelled with a C and not a K. Then there's Volak, Ualak, Valax, Valu, Valik, Valak. <laughs> really, it just sounds—it just sounds like some generic medicine for <laughs> migraines or something. Exactly. You summon Valak. I almost said Volak. Now, summon Valak, and everything's good. Take huh. your migraine away. Um, so he's actually uh, the information that I read. He's not a marquee of snakes. He's not a defiler or anything like that. Um, he is a high president in hell, 
and mm. the 62nd spirit of the Ars Goetia. Um, his appearance is he appears to the conjurer, the summoner, as a child with angel wings riding a two-headed dragon. That's pretty dope. Um, yeah, and <laughs> the baby on a dragon. The grimoire I read uh, kind of talked about how he does this because he's trying to appear to the conjurer and and gain their trust. It did say he is a very old and powerful demon, and some of the powers he can impart onto the conjurer have a little bit to do with snakes. It allows the conjurer to know the hidden location of snakes. Wait, quick question. <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned that it's an old and powerful demon. Yes. Are any demons young? I've never heard a demon referred to as young and weak. <laughs> um, I guess you could look at that as the name has been around for a long time. Mm. The the old grimoires, Lesser Key of Solomon, has Valak as a demon. Um, stuff like that. Okay. Um, but also, demonologists don't really have a doctrine, and so it's probably someone's just random opinion of of what they think demonology is entitled to, you know? Um, it's that, made up? What? What? That's, I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about magic and demonology and conjuring, is everybody has their own way of doing it. There's no, like, Bible on how to summon demons. There's, like... 15 of them (laughs) also he can impart the magician with knowledge of hidden treasures so if you want to go treasure hunting summon valak he provides true answers um and he can provide you with lucky numbers and job opportunities so he's the one who's putting the lucky numbers on those fortune cookie slips (laughs) exactly it's valak (laughs) And also, with the treasure hunting and giving truth, sometimes he gives you the truth that the real treasure was the time you spent <laughs> looking for the treasure. Yes. He's that kind of demon. Something kind of fun. I found this awesome website where it um, gives kind of real-life experiences with these demons. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to blackwitchcoven.com. Um, but they have two little blurbs that they've collected from people who have actually tried to summon Valak and, like, legitly follow the book and everything. Um, and so they give their accounts that I, I wanted to read them both. They're just kind of fun. Valak appeared before me as a naked man riding a dark green dragon, two giant serpents at his side. I explained to him my situation and asked him to help me. He didn't say a word, his facial expressions barely changing. He nodded at times. At other times, he just stared at me for a while as I spoke. After I thanked him for listening to my need, he just nodded and flew away. <laughs> I don't did, know. Did they get know. what they needed? <laughs> Who knows? Oh, Here's the next one. He appeared as a basilisk twisting on the floor, which is interesting because a basilisk in actual mythology has a lot of like chicken characteristics. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I think, know. I think maybe it was someone who didn't actually know what a basilisk is. They just watched Chamber of Secrets. Um, he appeared as a basilisk twisting on the floor. He tested my circle by lashing out against it with his fangs, just like snakes. 
When I constrained him in the circle, he was calmer, but clearly resented it. He delivered in full what I asked of him, was paid back, felt drained and weak. I felt like masturbating, which I know was just him trying to get to my energy. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> well, I mean, there was a very phallic-looking creature just <laughs> laying there on the floor, so... Oh my goodness. Um, something that I did find out in my search of demons, no one should ever look at my search history. <laughs> um, is something really cool that I, I really was drawn to and I think is pretty badass, honestly, is this idea of what's called a demonic on N E N N. Um, it's this sort of chant or mantra that you can repeat as you summon a demon and it's supposedly the demonic language and so it's calling out to them in their native tongue this was based off like a 16th century grimoire that nobody has a complete version of so i just I, that was fascinating i want to know all of the history about that but valak being an old and powerful demon actually has a demonic on and i have it here shall we read it and summon him Sure, let's summon more demons. We got Pazuzu, we'll have Valak, who else have we said? Oh, the the Watcher from the Necronomicon. Yeah. <laughs> no other podcast can deliver like we can. I mean, that's why we're the kings. <laughs> Alright, to summon Valak, one must chant, Avage Sekore Ankon Valak. There you go, there you have it. Oh no. Oh no, there's a weird basilisk! Oh no! Give it some grain and it will eat it. Because it's part chicken. Now I just imagine Valak being the chicken from Moana. Well, it's not as terrifying as a ginormous chicken. Yeah, that's fair. And on that, should we end this crazy episode of ours? Yes, but I did want to, uh, want to specifically mention that we have some merchandise! I told Shannon and Kiara this, and they fangirled so hard, I think they both bought one by the end of the day yesterday. Let me check. Has anyone bought them? So I guess we should tell people what they are buying. Yes. We've got some awesome shirts that have our Screaming King Skulls. Um, and it has hashtag stay spooky, which is it, it doesn't of... have the hashtag. It just says stay spooky. What were you thinking? I thought it had the hashtag. I could make a version that has the hashtag. We should have one that has the hashtag. Okay. We also want to make a couple that have hashtag and then some of these crazy fun hashtags we've had, like hashtag yes yes board. Um. So definitely stay tuned, Nathaniel. Do you want to give our listeners the deets? Okay. So it's on tpublic.com. So t e e public.com uh, if you just search for scream kings you can find it and and so because it's t public they make basically your design available on a bunch of stuff so you can buy it as a t-shirt you can buy it as a hoodie you can buy it as a tank top you can buy it as a mug you can buy it as a onesie for your baby uh you can buy it as a sticker you can buy it as a tote bag you can buy it as a chalice to do demonic rituals with nope no chalices oh phooey That'd be awesome, though. But yeah, so that's the first one we have is just the Stay Spooky. I'm going to probably make a few more uh, variants on that. Probably a hashtag Stay Spooky at your request, Max. I also have some ideas for some other things. Maybe some horror nerd stuff. We'll see what I'm able to come up with. 
and yeah, it, it should be pretty awesome. So you should buy it, because if you do, you might be the first person to buy one, because we currently have zero sold. I guess you and me should probably buy one. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I would like to own one. Well, if that ends our episode, shall we end it with Stay Spooky? Of course. Remember, buy a shirt that says, Stay Spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at Scream Kings Podcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.